Some of you may have heard of a, a story of a little boy who was in the church foyer, much like ours, one day, and he was staring at a, a plaque that had a, a list of names on it. And the pastor noticed the little boy's interest, and so he walked over to him and he said, Good morning, Alex. And he said, Good morning, Pastor. The little boy continued to look at this plaque and eventually said, Pastor, what is this? And the pastor went on to explain. He said, uh, This is a list of the men and women who have died in the service. And he looked at the pastor and said, Which service? <laughs> 915 or 1045? <laughs> It just didn't register for him because it was outside of his realm of experience. And the same is true for us. I, I can remember when I was at the hospital, and they had to remind us, Justin, you'll, you'll uh, understand this, they had to remind us uh, not to use the medical jargon that is so familiar to us but means absolutely nothing to the patients that we're treating. It, because that's already a scary place, right? It's an unfamiliar environment, and, and when people are using words you can't understand, it makes it even more uncomfortable. And so they made sure we understood the importance of not getting caught in that. Because really, it, it's not all that different. I've had a similar experience when we went to Mexico City, and, and all these people were having conversations with words I couldn't understand. And much like the hospital, most of the time I was the center of that conversation. They were pointing at me when they were having that talk. And that's the way our patients feel many times. Medical terminology is like a whole different language. But I noticed something. When I went over to the cancer center, it looked a little different because many of those patients had been under treatment for a number of years in some cases and months in most cases. And, and so they learned that new language. Uh, they understood what a port flush was. <laughs> they knew what it meant when you talked about blood draws and benign tumors and, and clear margins. That made sense to them. And in fact, one of the things that we began to notice as we were at the cancer center is that because of that knowledge through personal experience, those patients were actually our greatest advocates when it came to helping new patients understand what was ahead. And the reason is simple, because they had been through that experience themselves. So one of the things that we did is that we formed a, a patient advisory committee, a group of patients who've been through the experience of cancer treatment, and our goal was to better care for our patients by seeing things through their eyes. Because the fact of the matter is, no one understands better than those who've been through the experience themselves. Right? Well, the same thing is true as we talk about living a life of mission this morning. As we consider what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, we need to understand that we always speak most clearly from that which we've come to know through our own personal experience. Those who are most effective in sharing their faith who are those who are alive and well and living that faith. Now, I know that there's lots of strategies and techniques that, that have been proposed for effective evangelism, and I don't want to discredit any of those things. But I think the best way to speak about what it means to experience salvation through Jesus Christ is to share what you've come to know through your own personal experience. That's at least the perspective that we're going to take this morning as we consider this together. So before we do that, let's spend some time in prayer. God, we do come to you and pray that uh, we would be able to 
see your heart this morning as we talk about what it means to to be a people of God, to live a life of mission. Um, I pray that it flows out of our understanding of knowing your heart, knowing how you've demonstrated your love for us and to feel compelled and, and called to do the same because of the life that is within us through you. So, Father, as we consider that this morning, guide us and direct us through your spirit. And, and in fact, I pray that you revive something within us that needs to be awakened for the sake of your name. We pray this in your name, the name of Jesus Christ, the name from which we receive the salvation that we have in you. Amen. Well, I've recently come to the personal conviction that one of the reasons that we don't speak as often as we should, perhaps, about the story of God's redemption is that we don't really fully understand the magnitude of this miracle that is repeatedly displayed in the testimony of Scripture. And in fact, that's been something that that I have uh, learned and been impressed by in, in recent months myself. It's just how consistently and how frequently we see that demonstrated in the words of of Scripture. And so one of the things that I want to do this morning is I just want to take you on a little bit of my own journey. (laughs) I want to ask you to come with me and and walk through some of the things that that the Lord's been teaching me in hopes that they have the same impact on your life as that they are having in mine. One of the things that happened in recent weeks is uh, we had a staff meeting here at the church. And during that staff meeting, we, we talked about what happened in the Garden of Eden. And specifically, what took place when Adam and Eve partook of that apple from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This, of course, was the only tree in the garden that God put off limits, right? He gave them clear instructions that if you eat of this, you will die. But because of their own selfishness, and their unwillingness to completely trust him, they denied that protection and took of that apple, and the curse of sin was introduced to all mankind because of their decision. You see, God wanted to protect them, didn't he, from the penalty of death, but but because they chose to live in independence of him, they took on the penalty that he had promised would happen. The Bible tells us that their eyes were opened. Immediately, they felt the guilt and shame of their decision. They knew what they had done, and and so much so that what did they do? They hid, right? They hid from God. They rose up in pride. They hid in shame. And, And then God tells them, here's the consequences of the decision you've made, not only for you, but for all mankind to follow. Now, we're familiar with those. These are all, this is not a new story to you, is it? You're familiar with this. You know what he spoke to the woman. You, you know what he spoke to the man. But let me draw your attention to the close of that conversation that I think has unbelievable repercussions for us. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 with me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 says this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now let us stretch out his, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life 
and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And after the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim in the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. It's an interesting little description, isn't it? And we know from our understanding of the story of what took place in the Garden of Eden that the tree of life had significance, as did the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when we read this, we look at it initially and say, well, well, God is angry. And so he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Well, he does kick them out of the garden, but I don't believe it's because of his anger. I believe it's because of his great love. You see, the tree of life was not originally off limits, was it? In fact, when Adam and Eve were walking in that sinless fellowship with God, they could have and maybe did partake of that tree as often as they wanted to. But when the curse of sin was introduced, to have done the same thing would have had a disastrous effect. Sin had separated Adam and Eve from fellowship with God. And to eat from the tree of life would have perpetuated that result for all eternity. Mankind would have lived forever separated from the redemption that they would find in God. And so God's judgment that we see as he kicks them out of the garden is actually what made a way possible for his salvation. And this is what he had in mind when he spoke to Eve. And he told her, right, that from her seed that salvation would come. He, he spoke of that to her. You see, we haven't even left the Garden of Eden yet, and we're already beginning to see God's plan of redemption unfold. If you read a little further, you're going to bump into Noah. That's the next major event that you're going to come to. Now, we know that the earth had quickly become populated with lots and lots of people. The, the sad reality is, though, that those people were an evil people. In fact, God said when he looked upon the people of the earth that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was on evil continuously. That's what he said. Except for eight people, Noah and seven members of his family. They alone were righteous. They alone put their trust in God. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about this, and I'm doing a little math in my head, okay? Because the Bible says that there were ten generations from Adam to Noah. Right? And in ten generations, we've populated the earth and we're down to eight people who have put their faith and trust in God. Eight! And if you just carry that forward, is it just me or are we down to zero in no time at all? End of story, game over, we're done. So what does God do? He judges the earth with a flood. And again, I look at this and I do not see it as simply an example of God's fury. In fact, if you look at the account and see what God said when he looked upon the earth, saw the evil of mankind, it said that he was grieved. The heart of God was grieved. See, not unlike the garden, I believe once again, he rescued mankind and made a way of redemption. And he did so by destroying those who were unrepentant in their evil. And he protected those 
who put their trust in him. The scripture says God blessed Noah and he told them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Right. And so we know that this is something that he gave instructions towards because he wanted to make sure that that promise that he made would be fulfilled through the seed as they did what he commanded them to do. And then, of course, as we talked about last week, the next event you're going to bump into is the Tower of Babel. God's people created in, in God's image set out to find life in the fellowship of community instead of living in community and finding life in fellowship with God. Mankind, once again, was well on his way to becoming universally independent from God's redemption. Like the garden, they heard what God said, but they did not fully trust him, and they chose to do something different. So as we said last week, God disrupted their plans. He confused their language. And he graciously, I believe, gives them another opportunity to satisfy their need for fellowship through life and faith in him. So you see what's going on here? We're we're only 11 chapters into the first book of the Bible. And over and over and over again already, we see God's redemptive hand working in the lives of mankind to provide a way of salvation. We're 11 chapters into the first book of the Bible. You know, as I've been thinking about this, um, there's that verse in the Bible that says that his love endures forever. It's all beginning to make sense to me. His love endures forever continues on. God calls Abraham out of Ur to make him a great nation, he said. Now, we remember that he made that promise to an old man and an old woman who had no children and have not been able to have children. But literally, God delivers. And through Abraham, the son Isaac is born. And from Isaac, Jacob. And from Jacob, he has 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, that promise of the nation is fulfilled. Because those 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. That's what he promised. But that promise appears to be in jeopardy. Once again, as mankind starts to interrupt, it appears, God's plans. And they put that nation of Israel into bondage. The Egyptians take them and enslave them. And we look at what God had in mind, perhaps, and we think, oh no, this is all off track. But then we continue to read in Scripture, and it says that God saw the affliction of who? His people. He heard the cries of who? His people. And he saw the suffering of his people. And so he intervened with the undeniable purpose of delivering them. And as we know, he did so in dramatic fashion. The power of the plagues and and the preservation of God's people is undeniable. And it all culminated, as we talked about last week as well, that, that ordinance, that ceremony that God set up that said, I want you to do this from now on in remembrance of what has just happened as I've delivered you out of bondage from the hands of the Egyptians through the blood of the sacrifice of a lamb and protected you from the death that fell upon the firstborn child. We look at that now, 
And we see that not only did it commemorate what God had done in the past, it would prophetically look forward to what God would do yet future when that sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, would pay the price so that we would be covered in his blood and protected from the curse of sin that holds us in bondage. As you continue through the Old Testament, we're just skipping across the top here, guys. Just skipping across the top. Because as you continue, you get more and more information. You get more and more detail about this way of salvation, this promised seed and the Savior that would come to provide the salvation that God had promised. We began, as we said, with the general description of a seed that would come from a woman. And then we learn, as we continue to read, that it is more clearly identified as a seed that would come from a woman from the nation of Israel through the tribe of Benjamin, who would be born in the town of Bethlehem, who would become from the line of David. (laughs) That's some pretty impressive detail, and that tells me God does not want us to miss the way of salvation that he has provided. He's even cautious. He even cautions us through through the, the words of the prophet Isaiah to, to make sure that we don't miss it by, by looking for something that we might normally expect, some, some kind of king that would have a worldly reign or, or somebody that would have the appearance of majesty. That's what we would normally look for. And so he tells Isaiah, make sure they understand that's not what's coming. Instead, he goes on and describes what we can expect to see when he tells about the unfolding story of a man who would come forsaken by men, a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. Isaiah tells us, He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our sins. The grief he bears will be due to the punishment that he takes for the sake of the iniquity that we carry. It's all there as a part of God's unfolding story of his relentless love. We see over and over again how God graciously preserves his promise despite the depravity of mankind in order to make a way for our redemption over and over again. Now maybe you can understand why when the new tribe's missionaries go into unreached people groups of the world, they begin to tell them the story like we did this morning. They start with creation, and they walk them through these events to the point that when they get to the New Testament and they begin to describe the person of Jesus, they don't tell them who he is. But before those words get out of their mouth, they say, we know who he is. We've been waiting for him. That's the promise. That's our Savior. They discovered in the context of the story of God's redemption that began at creation. That's a beautiful thing. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And yet how often in our familiarity with this story do we miss the magnitude of God's miraculous grace? You see, living a life of mission begins with understanding the redemptive heart of God. Over and over again. Started way back in Genesis. 
And it continues to this very day. And now as a child of God, God's heart for the world resides in you. Same God. Same enduring love. And if we're walking in fellowship with him, his heart for the world will naturally flow out of the testimony of our lives to the point that it should be one of the key distinguishing characteristics of who we are as a people of God. In fact, if we're not telling this story, the only explanation that I can come up with is that we've lost the sense of the magnificence and beauty of this miraculous story of God's redemption. How else can you explain that we would hold that in? Let me suggest to you that the best place to start as we talk about God's redeeming love is to tell people from our own experience. Uh, Strategy and techniques, as I said earlier, for evangelism, they're not a bad thing. But I think the best thing is when we begin the testimony of faith with a description of how he changed me, how he changed you how he rescued me and how he rescued you, how he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let us speak first of that which we have come to know from our own personal experience. And be careful here because I know what some of you are thinking. Uh, You're listening to this. You're being reminded uh, of God's love and and maybe even feeling a, a sense of guilt and saying, I should be talking about this more often, right? Some of you might have gone as far as to, to write down on your notes, uh, share my faith with at least five people next week. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. But let me just remind you, your life is the gospel. Your life is the gospel. In fact, that is what we talked about last week in the, in the context of community. What I need most from you is for you to remind me what God has already done, not giving me a list of the things that you think I need to be doing. Tell me what God has already done. Tell me about the gospel and help me live my life in the reality of that truth. Because you and I need to live the gospel in order to share the gospel. We can only speak of that which we have come to know through personal experience. I need to remember and you need to remember every day that although we still struggle with sin, that we find forgiveness in His redemptive grace every single day. My worship begins, I believe, with my repentance. (laughs) And my praise naturally follows as I experience the fullness of His forgiveness. As Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I strive to grow in the knowledge of His will so so that I can bear fruit in the good works which He has prepared beforehand so that I may walk in them. He prepared the way of salvation and He goes on to prepare a way that we walk in that salvation. My obedience is not something I do for God. Instead, it is a result of living in the reality of what God is doing in me. That's the power of the Gospel. And the power of the Gospel is what transforms us by the renewing of our minds. Old things have gone. New things have come. 
Because when I live the gospel, I am a new creation in Christ. I'm a child of God. I approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because the gospel tells me that I still find mercy and grace in times of need. You see, you and I, we need to live the gospel in order to share the gospel. So I'm not suggesting that you should not go tell someone about Jesus. What I am telling you is that when you're walking in the daily experience of God's love through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, His heart for the world will not be hidden from the testimony of a gospel-centered life. It's impossible. So instead of focusing on what a strategy or technique might be, I suggest we at least begin the conversation about living a life of mission by considering the implications of living our lives in Christ. In fact, let's look at a passage that I believe helps us capture that. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually the beginning of a passage that I think we looked at last week. Um, when we were talking about being ministers of reconciliation. We're going to back up a few extra verses to verse uh, 14. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. If you'll begin reading with me in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul begins by saying that the love of Christ controls us. Maybe some of your translations may say that the love of Christ compels us. The reason they do that is because this is a unique Greek word that is a little bit difficult to interpret, and the context doesn't necessarily give us a great deal of clues as to which way to go. In one sense, it could suggest that the love of Christ is what motivates us or compels us to live out Christ-like actions. In the other sense, it could mean that the love of Christ is what constrains us or controls us from becoming overly self-seeking. In either way, the knowledge and experience of the love of Christ is the source and motivation of our own sacrificial lives lived for the sake of others. That tells me that the key to living a life of mission is found in the personal experience of my loving relationship with Jesus Christ. I inform people of the gospel out of the experience of what I've come to know through faith and trust in Him. It's based on my understanding that right alongside the story of God's redemption is the equally important reality of man's depravity, including me. And Christ died for all because we were all dead in sin. You and I were born in bondage, naturally inclined to carry out the ways of the world, bent on fulfilling the selfish desires of the flesh. It seems to me that one of the best ways to understand the depths of God's love is to really appreciate the depth of sin from which we have been rescued. Selfishness always leads to sin. But our life in Christ is what has given us the freedom and ability to no longer live for ourselves. What a prison. But to instead live for the sake 
of others. To live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And based on what we've talked about, I think it should be abundantly clear that when we do that, we're living for him who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the more we grow in our relationship with him, the more we live like him with an others-centered focus, dying to self and, and living for Christ for the sake of others. That's a life of mission. It's what Paul tells us in, in Philippians. We looked at this when we went through that passage together. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely look at, looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, these passages mirror each other, don't they? They speak of the life of mission that we are called to live as an outcome of our walk with Christ. In fact, you'll remember last week, I believe, I pointed out that the traits of who we are as God people all share a a common trait, don't they? You remember what that was? They're all Christ-centered, remember? They're all Christ-centered. And living a life of mission is no exception. Sharing the love of God always flows out of an abiding walk with Christ. Living a life of mission is a Christ-centered life. But based on what we talked about this morning, I want to take that idea, I want to expand it just a little bit. I want us to consider how these attributes of who we are as God people are not only Christ-centered, but they're gospel-centered. And and although those are very similar, let, let me explain what I see the difference to be. When I have a Christ-centered focus, I often think about what Christ has done for me. It's very personal as it should be. It's not a bad thing because it's really important for me to, to capture, to understand, and to personalize my sin and God's redemption of my life. I need to begin there. But when we have a gospel-centered focus, now I begin to consider what God has done for us. It moves beyond the the personal benefit to me, which is where we should rightly start. But where we should rightly go is to turn our focus and attention to others. For example, when I have this perspective, I, I seek to grow in the knowledge of truth, not only for my own benefit, but more important, when I have a gospel centered focus, I look at being able to use what I learn in order to benefit the life of someone else. So the next time you go to spend time with someone, maybe this week you'll have coffee or you'll have lunch with someone. Let me ask you to do something. Take just a few moments to pray and ask God to use what he's teaching you in your life to in some way encourage the life of someone else. And don't go into that conversation wanting to impress them with your advancing knowledge. That's not what this is about because at least in my life, when God is using something to teach me, he's usually changing me. He's usually breaking something about me 
that allows me to grow into a more conformed image of who he is. Dying to self. Living for Christ. And, and so when I've been in a conversation like that and somebody is sharing these kinds of things, I, I routinely leave a conversation like that thinking, I really needed to hear that. Especially when they speak of God's strength in times of weakness. His comfort in times of need. His redemption in times of failure. That's what has made the biggest impact on my life. You see, gospel-centered truth not only transforms my life, but it always has an impact on the life of someone else for the glory of God. Same is true for worship. In fact, I believe that sharing your faith is actually a form of worship. Sharing your faith is actually a form of worship. And it's consistently evident in a gospel-centered life. Because you think about it, just, just consider the songs we sang this morning, right? They routinely focus on what God has done through the person and work of Christ to give us things that we don't deserve, to live a life in fullness in Him. That's exactly what we do when we share our faith with someone else. We tell them about what God has done through the person and work of Christ to allow us to experience life in Him, things that we don't deserve, but He has graciously given to us. Gospel-centered life shares the gospel by what changed my life. See, a gospel-centered life is what moves us out of our comfort zones, of our routine centered around our needs, It motivates us to live life of sacrifice for the needs of someone else. That's a gospel-centered life. And so here's what I want you to do this week, okay? I want you to go back to the things that we've talked about. Worship. Truth. Community. Mission. And I want you to run all of those attributes through the filter of a gospel-centered life. You do that? And I want you to personalize it in such a way that you consider the impact of God's truth in your life in ways that benefits other people. I want you to think about the impact of gospel-centered worship in your life in a way that impacts other people. How is our life of worship encouraging others to find strength and hope in Christ? How is our life of community spurring us to live a life of mission? These are examples, but but I think you get the idea. Go through each one of them. Write them down. And even better, go find somebody, have lunch, have coffee, and tell them. This is how God is changing me. For his good purposes and for his glory. So that we can be the people that God has called us to be. Living a gospel-centered life of truth community, of mission, and most importantly, of worship, who made all that possible. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we just ask that uh, this becomes evidence in this church filled with your people of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God, that we would recognize the miraculous story of your redemptive love seen over and over again in the 
testimony of Scripture, but really over and over again in the testimony of our own lives. And because of that, Father, may we begin to adopt that heart of God that resides within us, that looks not only for our own interests, but more importantly for the interests of others. As we have been reminded, this is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. We are here for a purpose as ambassadors for you, Father, to bring the message of peace and hope that only is found in you, Father. So so may we live that gospel-centered life that grows in truth, but for the sake of benefiting someone else, that, that worships you, but for the sake of benefiting someone else, that lives in community, but only because it spurs us on to live a life of mission. Father, spur us on. May we encourage each other towards love and good deeds so that the difference we make in the world is one that brings praise and glory to your name as a people of God for your purposes. We pray this in your name.